2: strange familiars. How are you doing tonight, Allison?
3: Oh, I'm doing well.
2: This is episode 299.
3: If only we had already done 300, we could skip right to 301.
2: Well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> episode 300 is available. It's a multimedia project called The Witch Cloud. It has to do with Haunted Bridges in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's a podcast. It's an audiobook, There's some music with it. Lots of one-site recordings with it. We have, at this point, about 15 copies left of the first edition, the hardcover book. The hardcover book isn't available through Amazon. It won't be available through Amazon. It was the special first edition. It comes with a woven patch and a sticker and, of course, the audio download. If you want a copy of this first edition of The Witch Cloud, go ahead and pick it up now. Like I said, there's 15 copies left. After that, we will do a sort of general distribution version, a soft cover that'll be available on Amazon and so forth. But hopefully the first edition is the valuable collector's item in the future.
3: Plus it comes with lots of extra stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The Witch Cloud has been a really cool project, a really fun project to work on. If you are a patron, you heard the second patron episode in February. Chad and I went back to the bridges and to yet another haunted bridge in Gettysburg. There may indeed be more haunted bridges <laughs> in Gettysburg, but I don't know. But in any case, we went back. We got even more content out of the bridge. We're going to take a break for a while. We've gone to the bridge quite a bit, but it was fun to go back. And seeing as we were approaching 300, we thought we'd, we'd visit one more time and see what happens. Again, episode 300 is The Witch Cloud. The only way to get it is to purchase the book and you get the download with it. You can do that on Bandcamp, stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Or at our Etsy shop, shop name Lost Grave, if you type in Strange Familiars, you should see our stuff come up. I think the Witch Cloud might be the first thing that comes up when you type in Strange Familiars. As we always mention, patrons, we say you get every episode, and you will get the audio version of the Witch Cloud for free. You don't have to purchase it, but you will have to wait about a year. We'll (laughs) release that to patrons. Maybe we'll do it like the first of 2023 or something. We will release that to patrons, so you will get that for free but we hope that everybody picks up the hardcover book because it was meant, like I said, to be kind of a multimedia project. And as we are talking about Gettysburg for episode 300, we thought we'd do all Gettysburg episodes leading up to episode 300. And here we are.
3: It's good that you pick somewhere close, not like Omaha, Nebraska or something, because it would be a much longer commute. It would. Much more
2: difficult to talk about. <laughs> With so many of these stories I know... Where they're talking about, I can picture where they're talking about. And when I can't picture it, I can go there and find it, like the hermit's house. On tonight's episode, I was kind of jumping back and forth. I still haven't decided what to call it. Whether to call it Chased by Spectral Hounds, Mm -hmm. or The Mountain Lion of South Mountain, or The Last Man Hanged in Gettysburg. All of those would be good titles, right? Mm -hmm. That's all one man. His name is Henry Heist.
3: I feel like that's a name that's become sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: It
2: kind
3: of is, right? Like if you're, li- if you're like Fred Forgery. <laughs>
2: Johnny Murder.
3: <laughs> yeah, Johnny Murder. <laughs> it has to have the alliterative quality as well.
2: So Henry Heist, the last man hanged in Gettysburg. He's a murderer, perhaps. Mm-hmm. His spirit still wanders the area, perhaps. Henry Heist is the so-called mountain lion of the South Mountain area. I think that name was given to him later on because it's not in any of the earlier newspaper articles. But in the 1900s, in the articles looking back, they start calling Henry Heist the mountain lion.
3: I feel like that's one of those names that he fed to them, like, call me the mountain lion.
2: (laughs) Maybe. But it's not used at the time. So I think it's it's some uh, polishing of his character done Uh, a little bit later.
3: Call me the jaguar.
2: (laughs) He was, as the paper said, a quote-unquote noted character in the South Mountain region around Gettysburg and Michaud. And by noted character, I think they meant serial criminal.
3: Yeah. It appears as if the the area in which he hails from is a bit of a lawless land.
2: Yes. It was an area known as Black Corner. It's around Fairfield in Adams County, which is a little bit further west than Gettysburg.
3: Is this also close to that area? It's like Quincy and like there's a bunch of little towns kind of yeah, I think together and the different people from these stories kind of fall into these little tiny. Rouserville and
2: Waynesboro, and and it gets to be right on the line to Franklin County too, so you get characters coming in from Franklin County <laughs> as well. So Heist was born around eighteen sixty six. I don't think they know his actual birth date,
3: and that was from his um, the prison intake when he was one of his trips to Eastern State Penitentiary. You're getting ahead of the story. Okay. <laughs> okay.
2: Not much is known about his early life. We can assume it was pretty rough. He first makes the paper in December of 1886. The following is from the Public Opinion, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, December 17th, 1886.
3: Taken to Adams County. Constable Henry Peters of Fairfield, Adams County, came to town after Henry Heist, who was brought to our jail on Tuesday charged by Caleb Wade of Quincy, this county, with assault and battery and intent to kill. As Heist is wanted in Gettysburg on several charges of larceny, the Franklin County authorities withdrew the proceedings against him, and Constable Peters took his prisoner, handcuffed in a buggy over the mountains, to Gettysburg this morning. The arrangements for the transfer of the prisoner were made in Magistrate Hallman's office. The prisoner's sweetheart and some male friends were present. From one of the latter, Heist borrowed an overcoat and a pair of gloves for his cold ride over the mountains. Heist is a young fellow, not bad looking, and lives in the black corner near Rouser'sville. He is a wild young fellow, and in addition to the charges against him in Adams and Franklin County, is also wanted in Maryland for crimes committed there. He appeared very calm and cool this morning and started with the constable and another man on his long ride very cheerfully.
2: I tried to find what he was wanted for in Maryland, but I couldn't find it. I looked all through the papers in Maryland. No luck. No luck finding some. I believe he was wanted for something though. The Valley Spirit from Chambersburg on December 18th gives some additional details and crimes.
3: Yesterday morning, Henry Heiss was taken before Judge Hallman on the charge of assault and battery and drawing a revolver on a fellow citizen in what is known as the Black Corner in the southeastern portion of the county. The prosecutor and his witnesses failed to appear and the case against him was dropped. As soon as he was dismissed by Justice Hallman from the control of the Franklin County authorities, Constable Peters of Fairfield, Adams County, served a warrant on him for the theft of turkeys from an Adams County man and immediately started with him across the mountains. Heist will be indicted for two more crimes at the next session of the Adams County court, it is thought. One charge is that he assisted in the robbery of a store at Millerstown in that county, Yesterday morning at the hearing, he endeavored to appear unconcerned and succeeded pretty well. A friend who had come here to see him gave him his overcoat and woolen mittens for protection from the cold on the long drive to Gettysburg.
2: This won't be the first time that heist is charged with stealing poultry.
3: (laughs) It's so funny because one of the articles later on, it talks about a foul crime, and I was like, come on. It wasn't spelled the right way, but I was like, come on, (laughs) for a noted chicken thief. (laughs)
2: Less than a year later, Heist finds himself in trouble again. From the Valley Spirit, once again, November 28, 1887.
3: A grave charge for which one man must answer at court. A justice of the peace siders had Henry Heist before him this afternoon on the charge of firing three shots at and threatening to kill... B.F. Shockey of Washington Township one night recently. Along with Heist, Washington Patterson is accused of this deed, but he was not yet captured. Shockey and Constable John S. Rogers gave their testimony as to the event on which the charge is grounded, and Heist was sent to jail in default of bail for trial at court. The Shockeys will come up again, though they're another noted family in the area.
2: So that was November 28, 1887. He's jailed for the crime and others. (laughs) <laughs> in December of 1887.
3: I like that they're just at this point just saying, just, there'll be a list.
2: <laughs> this article was from the Public Weekly Opinion, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, December 9th, 1887.
3: The other case tried on Wednesday was Commonwealth versus John H. Barnes and Henry Heist. Charged larceny and receiving stolen goods on oath of John H. Shank the jury returned a verdict of guilty of larceny. Heist with Washington Patterson was still involved in two more cases, which occupied all of Thursday and Thursday evening sessions. The charge in one was for shooting at another with intent to kill, B of Shock being the prosecutor. As soon as the jury retired to deliberate on this case, which was last evening, the accused was arranged on the charge of assault and battery on oath of John Mann, the difficulty being caused at a dance hall at the house of the prosecutor. The parties come from what is known as Black Corner and seem to be a hard set. The jury found defendants guilty of discharging a pistol at Shockey, and in the last case, that of Assault and Battery, not guilty. Costs to be paid equally between prosecutor and defendants. Sentences were pronounced as follows. In the case of Henry Heist, larceny, he was sentenced to two years and ten months in the Eastern State Penitentiary. In the case of shooting, sentence was deferred until he had served his term in the penitentiary. Washington Patterson was sentenced to one-cent fine and cost of prosecution in eight months in the county jail. John H. Barnes was required to give Bond for $1,000 for his appearance at the next term of court.
2: That name, John Mon, is that relative to another name that will come up?
3: Absolutely. Is These it? families are all related. Okay.
2: In less than a month, <laughs> Heist is in prison, and he's in trouble for fighting. In prison, he gets himself in a, a bit of a tussle. This is from the Valley Spirit, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, January 4th, 1888.
3: Just to note that this also contains, I would say, historically accurate vernacular, which is not common usage today.
2: Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. These are not our words. In other words, these are the words of the article. Alison same. We we're just reading the article.
3: Broken bones. He kicked him on the arm. Heist need not work for a time. Sheriff Malvary, accompanied by George D. McDowell, Esquire, took Henry Heist to the penitentiary on Wednesday. Heist was sentenced at the last term of court to two years and ten months imprisonment for larceny in Quincy Township. Tuesday, Heist, who had been a troublesome fellow in jail, started Leonard Hall and Albert Pendleton, two little colored fellows, to fighting. Hall was being whipped, and he caught hold of a cell door and kicked Pendleton from him. Heist, who did not want to see the quarrel end, put the boys back together, and this time Ben Lane of Fayetteville interfered and Heist struck him. A few blows followed on each side, when Lane kicked Heist and broke his right arm at the wrist. That ended the fight. A physician operated upon the arm, and Heiss was removed to the penitentiary, as said that morning. So I guess he got out of some jobs in prison for a little while. I guess. For inciting a a fight and then getting kicked.
2: He seems like a hard man. Yeah. Keep all this in mind when we come back to the later articles, which, like I said, kind of portray him as this mountain hero. We'll see.
3: I'm not trying to prejudice the jury either <laughs> <And> the, the <laughs> from his is, prior crimes.
2: As we skip through these, these times, I want to note that I did the math as I'm clipping these articles. Uh-huh. He's out of prison not very long before he, yeah. he's caught for these other crimes. So it's, he's just out for a couple months and then he's caught for this other crime. Back in, yeah, he's definitely a troubled soul. In December of 1890, Heist is arrested for chicken theft. This isn't his first offense. Could not have been too long after he was released from prison, December of 1890, if you'd look at the sentence he was given before. This is from the Valley Spirit, December 17th, 1890.
3: Constable Rock of Waynesboro has arrested Henry Heist, a noted mountain character near Greenwood for the theft of chickens from Jeremiah Shockey of near Roadside. 1870... He's living with his parents, and I, I saw that the, the um, Jeremiah Shockey was their direct neighbor two doors down. Uh, so he's so, just
2: robbing his neighbors. Yeah, thinking. he's
3: robbing his neighbors. There's a real Hatfield and McCoy kind of vibe going on in this area.
2: His chicken thievery trial wasn't held until maybe it was February of 1891. I have it as March, but it, the, the article appears in March. So the Valley Spirit, again, reports from March 4th, 1891.
3: Henry Heiss found guilty of the larceny of chickens from Jeremiah Shockey and sentenced to pay a fine of $5, the costs, and 15 months of the penitentiary.
2: Fifteen months for chicken stealing.
3: Might have been a lot of chickens. Or this is his 18th offense. Exactly, yeah.
2: <laughs> so he's getting out of jail, and he's going right back to committing crimes. In February of 1893... A man named Emmanuel Mon goes missing. Now, this is spelled in the paper a couple of different ways. M-A-U-N, M-O-N-N.
3: M-O-H-N, I saw M- Yeah, yeah. I think it's M-O-N-N. That's the way the family in the graveyard, most of the
2: okay. records. So, Mon was the last name of the man who made the complaint before, mm-hmm. we mentioned previously, at the dance. Emmanuel Mon had been living in a hut and chopping wood near Black Corner, with Henry Heist. In March of 1893, Heist is on the run. He's wanted for the murder of Emmanuel Mon. The Franklin Repository from Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, featured the following article on March 13, 1893.
3: Hunting a Murderer. The South Mountain, the scene of a lively chase. An Adams County homicide. The alleged murderer comes into Franklin County and is hunted by our officials. No capture made yet. The following dispatch from Gettysburg tells of a foul murder just recently unearthed. That's where I got the chicken, the -hmm. foul murder. murder. (laughs) Gettysburg, PA, March 12th. For a month or more, a young man named Mon, aged about 18, has been missing from Fairfield, a small town 10 miles west of this place.
2: We should stop and warn people. There's some pretty graphic description of the corpse in these articles. This one and going forward, just so people know. Go ahead.
3: He and a companion named Henry Heist had been chopping wood and living in a hut near Black Corner on the South Mountain. Heist returned to Fairfield three weeks ago. He told several contradictory stories concerning Munn's whereabouts and sold the latter's axe. This aroused some suspicion, and a slight search was made in the neighborhood of the cabin, but the ground was covered with snow several feet deep, and it was impossible to make any progress. At this time, Heist remained around the village. Meanwhile, the snow had melted. The suspicion grew— and yesterday the district attorney was notified of the matter. Acting under his instructions, Constable Peters today organized a party, and late this afternoon the body of Mon was found. It was hidden under a pile of stones, but a portion of one of the shoes protruded. There were four wounds on the body, any of which would have caused death, one entering the skull directly in the middle of the forehead, made by the blunt end of a hatchet, and another by the back of the ear. The lower jaw had been hacked off and the throat cut. The coroner's jury found that the deed had been committed by Henry Heist. Heist left on Saturday and is now supposed to be in Franklin County. Measures were at once taken to arrest him. He's a bad character and has had several terms in the penitentiary. The murder is supposed to have been committed about February 3rd, but the deep snow and intense cold that had prevailed on the mountains had perfectly preserved the body. The only known motive for the crime is jealousy, as Heist and Munn were supposed to have had at one time a trifling difficulty about a woman. The murdered man's name is Emanuel Munn, he was 18 years old and has a sister, Nancy, living near the Old Forge. Mon is said to have been a very decent young fellow, and his sister, Nancy, was an intimate of heist. District Attorney Charles Duncan telegraphed on Sunday to Chief of Police Mull that the man heist was in Fayetteville and asked that he be arrested. Early this morning, Officers Swisher and Karchbaum, after being on duty all night started after the fugitive and after a long weary drive returned at noon today in time to go on duty without the wanted heist. From here the police went to John Henry Barnes not far from Fayetteville where heist had been staying. He had been there for some time and on Saturday went to Fayetteville to get coal for Mr. Barnes. Mrs. Barnes said he rolled and tossed so at night that she wanted to get a doctor for him. He was evidently suffering the pangs of remorse. At 2 p.m. on Sunday he left the Barnes and started for Tomstown to visit a sister, Mrs. Anne Mott. Our police followed the trail but found he had left there and after visiting Alex Rocks had gone to another sister, Mrs. Jacob Munn. He ate supper here and bought a white dog and then saying he was going back to John Henry Barnes' house left. Back to Barnes went our police and they get to the house just as a search party from Waynesboro arrives. Our officers examine the entire place but the bird had flown again. Constables Rock and Rogers Lawyer Carl Needy and another man from Waynesboro held a conference with our officers. Constable D. Hart and some Fayetteville men are also on the hunt in the mountains. Our police were compelled to return to town to go on duty again, but feel sure they might, with more time, have apprehended the fellow. If the Gettysburg authorities had wired sooner, they certainly would have caught him. He has either gone over a brittle path into Virginia to his father's home, or has struck for the old forge up in the mountain across the river from Fairfield, the scene of the murder. He evidently does not know the crime has been discovered and is not aware that he is being followed. When he finds this out, he may be hard to catch. The Waynesboro posse also went back home at noon and none of the officers are in the chase now except probably the Fayetteville people. Heist is about 32 years old, is about 5 feet 6 inches tall, very square-shouldered and well-built, and has sandy hair and a red mustache. It is hoped he will be caught and brought to justice, and it is a pity our officers had not more time in which to get him.
2: The Gettysburg Compiler chimes in on March 14th, 1893. I like this article because this, this warrant or verdict that the judge issues, the wording is particularly interesting.
3: Woodchopper Mann's body found horribly mutilated. Heist, his fellow woodsman, charged with the crime... Intense excitement has prevailed in the neighborhood of Maria Furness <laughs> in Hamilton Ban Township several miles above Fairfield over the disappearance of a woodchopper named Emanuel Mon, who with his companion, Henry Heiss, had built a shanty near their work. Some weeks ago, Mon disappeared, and the actions of Heiss and his contradictory stories as to Mon's whereabouts aroused suspicion, and several searching parties secured the neighborhood. Constable Peters apprised the district attorney of the situation and was instructed to spare no effort in finding the missing man. The search was renewed, and a telegram on Sunday evening announced that Mon's body had been found lying beside a log near the shanty covered with brush and stones, the rapidly melting snow of Sunday exposing the body. On examination, the head was found horribly mutilated, evidently with a hatchet. Justice of the Peace, D.R. Musselman, was notified of the fact and summoned the following. Robert Watson, Foreman, C.A. Spangler, P.S. Harbaugh, Aaron Musselman, C.J. Sefton, and G.E. Brown, who, after viewing the body, returned the following verdict. That one, Henry Heiss, late of Hamilton Bond Township, aforesaid laborer, not having God before his eyes, but being moved and seduced by the instruction of the devil on or about the second day of February, 1893, aforesaid with force and arms at Hamilton Bond Township in the county, aforesaid in and upon the aforesaid Emanuel Mon, in the peace of God and of the commonwealth feloniously voluntarily, and of his malice aforethought, made an assault, and that the aforesaid Henry Heiss, then and there, with a hatchet made of iron and steel, which is supposed to be the said Henry Heiss, did first strike the said Emmanuel Mon on the back of the head, a second blow on the forehead crushing the skull, one mortal wound, supposed to be weighed with a sharp instrument, cutting off part of the chin and severing the windpipe, and cut about three inches in length of which said mortal wound, the aforesaid, said Emmanuel Mon then and there instantly had. And the aforesaid Henry Heist then and there killed and murdered the said Emmanuel Mon against the peace and dignity of the said commonwealth.
2: It's very awkward, that Warren or whatever it is, but I love that they were like move, being moved by the devil or whatever. What's the word? Yeah, of that? yeah, it's like, it was like, um,
3: seduced by the instigation of the devil.
2: Seduced by the instigation of the devil.
3: It's a pretty good defense, really. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Still in 1893. Like, you would expect to find something like that in, like, you know, the 1600s, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Seduced by the instigation of the devil.
3: So they still haven't found him by mid late March, right?
2: Well, by late March, a reward was being offered for oh. the arrest of Heist. This is from the Gazette, York, Pennsylvania, March 20th, 1893.
3: The Adams County Commissions have at last offered a reward of $100 for the arrest of Henry Heist charged with murder.
2: Yeah, $100 is pretty good. However, Heist had already been caught. We would learn that he had already been caught from the Gettysburg Compiler, March 21st, 1893.
3: Heist gives himself up, interview with a suspected man. For the past week, general interest has been manifested in connection with the murder of Emmanuel Mann, as given in our last issue. Rumors were afloat as to Heist's whereabouts, and detectives were pursuing him. On Saturday morning, Sheriff Stoner was called into his office to meet several visitors, Henry Heist, and Mr. Harvey Scott, the latter having brought Heist in from his father's place in whose barn he slept the night before. Heist delivered himself to the sheriff and asked Mr. Scott to send Mr. Neely to see him. Heist was placed in the granite cell in the jail awaiting his trial. In an interview with a compiler representative, Heist, who was about 28 years of age, a tall, muscular man, declared himself innocent of the crime, placing the burden thereupon several parties who sold cider and wine in the neighborhood. He said, quote-unquote, The boy, referring to Mon, was fa- fond of cider and wine and would get under the influence whenever he could. Heist said Mann left on a Thursday, the day of bone break sale, saying he was going to Gettysburg to buy a coat and vest and would be away for about two weeks. On Friday, Heist says, He and his niece, Miss Susie McLeaf, left for Mons' fathers and returned the following Wednesday. He said that he first heard of Mons' death on Sunday evening or Monday morning last week and remained in the neighborhood. Finding himself suspected and officers on his track, he says he determined to come to Gettysburg and give himself up. This conclusion he reached on Tuesday last and worked his way toward town, declaring that he would not be arrested by Officer Rock. Heist has served two terms in the penitentiary from Franklin County and has been defendant several times in this county.
2: I used to sell it until August of 1893, when a jury is selected to hear his case, and the trial happens in September of 1893.
3: They were friends. I mean, they were good, good friends to the point where there were some thinly veiled suggestions that there might be something else about their relationship, even though. Well,
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't come across that.
3: Well, they refer to them, and I don't know, this is probably where we need to get Brother Richard on the line again, but they refer to them as having a David and Jonathan friendship.
2: And that's a Bible reference? Yeah, it's a
3: biblical reference, which, while in one term, is supposed to sort of imply a certain closeness between men of a social. Nature, a Platonic mm-hmm. nature. It, is, it was also used by Oscar Wilde in his defense of his relationship with Bosie. So mm. <laughs> we have these. They're, Interesting. they're they're definitely close. Although I get the impression that everyone on this mountain is rather close knit, to a both a positive and very negative.
2: Yeah it seems like a really rough place. Yeah
3: everyone's uh, everyone is interrelated as I start in on these stories you can so you can even talk about where he's living at one time is the same person he was arrested for stealing from previously. Mm-hmm. Like so Yeah.
2: Yeah these names pop up they, again they and again. They pop up articles. again
3: and this is not the only time that this kind of heinous crime has happened in this area.
2: Oh, yeah, you found some a much earlier crime, right?
3: Yeah, this is fascinating because, um, you know, when you're playing Strange Familiars Bingo or maybe just Tim and Allison Bingo, there's certain things that pop up again, like hermits pop up for you all the time and the Underground Railroad pops up for me all the time.
2: Speaking of, both Mon and Heist are referred to in retrospect in the 1900s as hermits.
3: Yes, I saw, yes. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, they're even listed in the census as woodchoppers. Woodchoppers, Yeah. yeah. So, all the way back in 1817, in the same area, there 1817. was. 1817.
2: Wow. That's, yeah. That's,
3: there was this hideous crime. I'm going to read you the article because it's just, it's so brutal and seemingly unprovoked, it has a very odd component to it. So, I'm going to read the article.
2: So, this is not about heist. This yeah, this go on
3: back in time to 1817. Stepping
2: back. We'll get back to heist trial. It doesn't end well for him. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to heist trial. But for now, we're doing some background in the area, this black corner area. Where he came from.
3: Yeah, also like the Maria Furnace. area. Yeah, it's all the same same All the same area. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is from actually the Evening Post in New York City, and they're reporting on Gettysburg, Pennsylvania on June 25th, 1817. Wow. It becomes our painful duty to announce a most atrocious attempt to murder... On Monday last, Mr. Henry Hege, a young gentleman of inoffensive manners and unpeachable character, went to the house of Thomas Larimer, distant from this place five miles on the Baltimore Turnpike, on his business. Mr. Larimer was in his meadow with several others mowing. Hege and two other young men who were in his company were requested to take scythes and mow a swarth. Hiki, accordingly, stooped to lift up a scythe, and just as he raised himself up, was struck by James Hunter with a scythe on the breast and neck, forming an angular wound from the breast up both sides of the neck, towards and behind the ears, the windpipe completely dissevered, and the gullet of throat cut up in a flap. His situation is dangerous in the extreme. Hunter has been apprehended and is now safe in prison. We forbear reciting particulars as the case will receive a judicial investigation. Then there's an update on July 2nd. Monday last closed the scene of Henry Hege's murder. He sustained his afflictions with fortitude and resignation and bowed to his fate without a struggle. Thus has been untimely cut down in the flower of age a young man whose character was universally esteemed and whose fate will be generally lamented. His relations are numerous, respectable, and exquisitely sensible of their bereavement. Okay. This is an entirely unprovoked side attack.
2: So... For those who don't know, in the summer, we work on a little family farm with John. It's John's farm, but it's a few other families, including us, work on this farm. We, we raise food for ourselves, and I have occasion to use a scythe.
3: You kind of dig it.
2: I love it, yeah. It's an excellent tool for farming. That's- I can barely listen to this as you're, mm. you're describing it because I know what a scythe can do.
3: And what force and purpose you'd have to take to do that to somebody. Oh,
2: my goodness. Wow. That is.
3: (laughs) So so here's the even more interesting part, at least for me. Okay. Taking up his defense is Mr. Thaddeus Stevens. Thaddeus Stevens. And for, he's probably more well-known around this area. Mm Mm-hmm very famous radical abolitionist. He defended all of the people involved, the Christiana resistance and Christiana.
2: Which we'll have to cover some. Yeah, that's that's a Fantastic whole other story, story. but
3: great uh, representative of that period of time of really progressive thought. He also owned Maria Furnace. He's invested in this area already, but this is one of his first break. He is the uh, counsel for the, the murderer in this area.
2: I know Thaddeus Stevens from Caledonia Furnace.
3: Yeah, he, I think he owned several furnaces.
2: Okay, so he, he owned more than one. I think he's an example of one of the few furnace masters that wasn't cruel. But he has a pretty good reputation. Most yeah. of these furnace masters are, you know, the cruel furnace master. You know, there's, there's tons of stories about these guys.
3: Yeah, Thaddeus Stevens pops up again in different stories, so we'll have to revisit him later on. He's one of my personal kind of local heroes.
2: <laughs> there was furnaces, by the way, you've heard us probably talk about this, Chad and I, there was furnaces all throughout the Michaux area, all throughout the South Mountains there. South Mountains, when we say South Mountains, that's the the chain of the mountains that comes through Michaux, just west of Gettysburg there, goes down into Maryland. The number of furnaces there, I mean, we keep finding new ones. We can't settle in a number because we keep finding more. There were, I don't know, a bunch of them there, like nine or something, different iron furnaces in there. So it's a huge industry at that time.
3: And um, during the Civil War when Jubal Early came on his march and eventually ended up in York, Previous to that, they burned all of the furnaces on the way because they knew that they belonged to Thaddeus Stevens mm. since he was an ardent anti-slavery proponent. But anyway, so I, I felt like it was interesting that another vicious attack by or, or Hatchet or Scythe was committed in the same exact area.
2: So Emmanuel Mann, what do we know about him? Like we're going to skip ahead several years, the heist victim.
3: An interesting aspect of this that is not mentioned in the papers, which is kind of quizzical for this time period, is that he is of mixed race. On the census, he's uh, listed as being mulatto. His father is white and his mother is mixed race.
2: Again, these are terms that we know are not in common usage today. The, yeah, so it's if just I, what is listed on, yeah, on the Yeah, I'm just saying census.
3: what's listed on the census. Yes. I won't be referring to him as such. He's mixed race, and they didn't mention that in the article. I went back and looked a little bit into his um, mother's side of the family. They appear to be uh, either free or freed people from Frederick County, Maryland, mm. right along the border there. It's interesting, too, because when I was researching his family, they're all buried in this really sort of abandoned, cool family cemetery where the, the stones are really well-preserved, but they're just kind of hidden. Mm-hmm. And you can see that one of his sisters married one of the Shockies. Like, so it, it is all of these families that oh, are just sort of— you just, just see these of, names again. Like, yeah, just yeah. woven— their their lives are just interwoven so so much so they can't get away from each other even in death. Yeah, we don't know too much else about him, but there are other people in his family who do find themselves involved in crime as well as the Shockies were involved in a counterfeiting ring in the 1780s. There's a, a double murder involved with the Shockies in the in the 20s. There's another murder within the Mon family between relatives. There's so they're um,
2: oh wow. Yes. There's a lot of
3: crime going on around here. Yes, It's funny because we, we do tend to think of these kind of heinous things as being like 20th century conventions, that there weren't, you know, like these little pockets of people engaged in really nefarious activities until recently, I think.
2: I don't know. I remember reading some accounts, you know, when I was learning old-time banjo about these dances that they would have, these old-time music dances and you know you think like these wholesome gatherings where people are you know coming to play banjo and fiddle and, and mm-hmm. dance they're apparently pretty rough like people would go to fight they were a rough time
3: what else was there to do though really <laughs> <laughs> I mean this, these places are remote now what was there to do then I mean you just kind of stuck with your neighbors right
2: yeah Got to punch him at some point.
3: <laughs> I mean, they, I mean that is really kind of the essence of family, isn't it? When you make the transition from friendship to family,
2: <laughs> with no internet, you yeah, got to punch we, a neighbor. Yeah. Shall we get back to the trial?
3: Yes, I'm sorry. I just, I really found that fascinating. Though, when we that I found a Thaddeus Stevens reference.
2: A lot of people testified against Heist in the trial. The trial notes are, are very long and very detailed. People testify about you know finding the body and, and about Heist selling uh, Mon's axe and
3: But there's a fairly consistent narrative that springs up amongst the people that are testifying that isn't in his testimony. Being that they have a fairly consistent story of what oh, right. happened yeah. the last time they saw him, what had happened preceding yeah, that. Yeah, his, and-
2: his story keeps changing and, and will change yet again. So he's found guilty. Shocker. November of 1893, the governor of Pennsylvania signed his death warrant. He was to be hanged in Gettysburg. He was given a 30-day respite, a stay of execution. It did not work out for Heist. His execution was set for January 17th, 1894. The Gettysburg Compiler printed the following on January 16th, 1893.
3: Tomorrow's execution. On Saturday morning, the gallows, used first in the coil hanging, which we'll discuss at another time, yes. and which had been stored in the courthouse cellar, was hauled to the jail yard and re-erected by its builder, Mr. C.H. Comfort, ironic, where it stood nearly 10 years ago. Tomorrow it will be used for the execution of Henry Heist, convicted of the murder of Emmanuel Mon which occurred near Maria Furness, on the night of February 1st last. Sheriff McElhenney has about completed the details for the execution. Black being the customary clothing of the condemned, a suit has been ordered for the prisoner. As stated last week, the sheriff has issued a comparatively small number of tickets and all requests are now denied. We are informed that the prisoner has recently shown a disposition of forgiveness and penitence. Friday last, visiting day at the jail was phenomenal in the number of persons who thronged the corridor to see the condemned man, the number being 952, many of whom were visitors brought here by the fire.
2: 952.
3: Is that even possible?
2: I don't know, and I don't know what fire they're talking about. Those gallows, by the way, that they mention, first of all, as you said, the coil hanging, we will get into that in a future episode of Strange Familiars. But the gallows they're talking about, they have an interesting history. They were sold to Westminster, Maryland. So Heist is the last person hanged on these gallows in Gettysburg.
3: How do they know they weren't going to need them ever again? Did they decide they weren't going to be hanging I don't anymore? know.
2: I don't know. But I, they get sold to Westminster, Maryland where they're used for another execution there.
3: That's so gruesome. Right. I mean, I didn't know they were so. Is the mechanism so advanced at that time that, like, yeah, right? Couldn't I, like, the fact that the guy who built its name was Comfort is just about as ironic as his name was Heist. It's so
2: crazy how there's like there's actually like a history to these gallows. Henry Heist was hanged on January 17th. The Gettysburg Compiler reported on the event January 23rd, 1894.
3: This has a little picture of the accused and a little illustration. It's funny because. Between the two articles, at one point they said he was a very tall man. And then the other article, they said he was five foot six.
2: Yeah, they said he was short. Yeah, and, and sandy had the hair. Yeah, yeah.
3: In this picture, he looks to have dark colored hair. I mean, it's hard with an illustration to get that across, but.
2: Nice brushy mustache, though.
3: Yeah, he does have a quality mustache. Heist paid the penalty, hung for the murder of Manuel Mon. He dies protesting his innocence of the crime, particulars of the execution, and his speech on the gallows. Wednesday, the last day on earth for Henry Heist convicted of the murder of Emmanuel Mon at the shanty they jointly occupied near the old Maria Furnace was clear and bright. Early in the morning, visitors came from all sections of the county hoping to see the execution. Sheriff McElhenney very properly limited the number of admissions, and less than 200 persons viewed the closing scene of the tragedy, which started on the night of February 1, 1893, in the death of Mon. Through the courtesy of the sheriff, a compiler representative, was present and participated in an interview at the cell door. Watchman F. P. Sloniker and Theodore Hawkins present when Messrs. C. W. Kremer of the Chambersburg Valley Spirit, Ed G. Fultz of the Opinion, and J. A. Hamilton of the Repository, and Robert Short of the Harrisburg Telegram interrogated the doomed man regarding his knowledge of the Hollinger murder in Franklin County, to whom he had replied that the Hollingers knew all about the crime that the man who committed it was dead, and that he, Heist, knew a good deal about it would tell nothing, saying they don't hang people for a crime anyhow. A man walks into a building, and he gets a bullet in his head, and they go straight into a phosphate factory, and that ends it. The prisoner, who has been closely guarded, only his spiritual advisor being with him alone recently, seemed in the best of spirits. In reply to questions, he said he slept well the night before and ate a hearty breakfast because he was innocent man and he had no dread of what was to come. He said he had prepared a statement, of which we have best authority that as far as the care of Mons murder is concerned, it has no facts which Heist has not already given the writer, and all of which are familiar to compiler readers. He was in his shirt sleeves, as usual, wearing the pants and vest of his new black suit furnished by Mr. J. H. Stein, cleanly shaven, and spent most of the morning, when not in conversation, singing his favorite song, I Never Will Forget My Dear Old Mother's Face. At 1010, when the corridor was cleared, His handshake was as firm as months before. During the entire morning, a vast throng crowded the street in front of the jail, importuning, but only those who had cards were admitted. At 11.05, Sheriff McElhenny emerged from the door at the rear of the corridor, which had been draped in black. With firm, appeared Heist, dressed in a suit of black and with his wrists in handcuffs behind his back. Following them came Reverend Hugh Gilchrist, the prisoner's spiritual advisor, and District Attorney Charles Duncan. The four ascended the steps and stood upon the six-foot square platform. Sheriff McElhenney turned to Heist and asked him if he had anything to say. With a firm voice, Heist declared himself innocent of the murder, regretting that he had not told more of his case before. In a disconnected and rambling speech of several minutes, he blamed others for swearing his life away, saying that they were put up to it to take his life for money. He adhered to a statement that George Reese was the party, but did not believe he did it on purpose. He said he had no grudge against anyone and that he had left a statement. During his remarks, he blamed District Attorney Duncan for the part he had taken, and also censured ex-district attorney Bowers of Franklin County for his part in twice sending him to the penitentiary. He extended his thanks to Sheriff Stoner and McElhoney for their kindness, and at the close of his talk, the reverend spoke to him of forgiveness, and when he turned to the district attorney and said, I have forgiven the rest, and I'll forgive you too. Reverend Gilchrist, who had no effort unspared to impress the man of his impending doom and the importance of repentance and forgiveness, followed with a brief but nonetheless fervent prayer. The sheriff then buckled on the two straps, which bound his legs and adjusted the black cap covering his face, thus facing the prisoner, noting a smile on his countenance. These preliminaries over, the reverend and district attorney and sheriff descended the steps when at 11.14, the bolts noiselessly moved, the platform doors swung back, And Henry Heist was ushered into eternity, dropping fully five feet. The body swung around somewhat, and several slight muscular efforts were apparent. The jail physician, the coroner, and representatives of the medical profession from this place, as well as all of the county, surrounded the body and made frequent examinations. At the end of ten minutes, his pulse was beating with vigor, and two minutes later it weakened. Ugh. That's horrible. I know. Heartbeats were heard at the end of 14 minutes. Oh and at 11.30 he was pronounced dead. At 11.39 the body was taken down and carried into the corridor where the noose was removed from his neck, the cap taken off, and the jury, after viewing the remains, pronounced him dead from strangulation. During the afternoon, a post-mortem examination of the body was made by quite a number of physicians, revealing a normal condition in the brain and other organs. The man was of remarkably powerful physique, weighed 183 pounds and nearly 29 years of age. The prisoner's aunt, Mrs. John Henry Barnes of Germantown near Fayetteville, Franklin County, who with her husband was in the jail at the time of the execution, claimed the body, which under the direction of Undertaker Garlick, was interred the same evening at the Almshouse graveyard. At an early hour in the morning, the sheriff swore in a large number of deputies who kept perfect order outside as well during the execution. In the performance of this solemn duty, the sheriff was cool and composed and received many compliments.
2: So... Henry Heist is the last man hanged in Adams County, last man hanged in Gettysburg. In 1911, you know, so it's uh, what, like 15 years later, something like that? Mm -hmm. The Adams County Independent from Littlestown printed an interesting recap of the entire saga.
3: A smile that cost two lives in Adams County. Foul murder claimed the hermit Hunter Mann and his friend Henry Heist paid the price on the gallows. Tragic romance of Henry Heist, the mountain lion, remains the most thrilling and among the most mysterious of crimes attributed to Adams County. The law hanged the mountain lion on the strength of its original verdict, but it hanged him while the popular clamor for vengeance upon the slayer of his friend, Emmanuel Mon was already turned to pity and doubt of his guilt, and in spite of urgent appeals, that the extreme penalty be not entered. Those two men, Heist and Mon, had been companion hermits, inseparable for years and famous for their friendship. In a single night, the smiles of a fickle girl at a country dance were declared by the law that demanded heist life to have made them foes so bitter that only one of the pair could breathe the breath of life. You can read this terrible romance of the mountains in a novel, if you will, but the truth is, as it happens here. Far back in the wooded section of Adams County in the South Mountain region, two hermits lived in a lonely cabin on the top of the range, almost apart from civilization, earning a scanty livelihood through their skill as hunters and trappers. When opportunity came their way, they would cut timber to increase their slight income, but for years they remained strangers to their neighbors on Jack's Mountain, where they built their rude shack.
2: Already you can see the holes, you can punch holes in this... Yeah, like the, the whole
3: narratives completely changed. Yeah. It, it was quite obvious they lived in a, a shack on the land of George Reese, and not that far away from. And Rome.
2: they were very. They were going to dances. They knew everybody. They had interchanges with everybody in the community on a regular know, on basis. A, yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so yeah. So this is this is a very different take on it. Fifteen years later,
3: even the insistence that this was over um, a girl is a, a slightly n- newer.
2: Yeah, I mean there was a. There, that was a suspicion at the time, but mm-hmm. this becomes like the whole story. Yeah. yeah.
3: Early in the 90s, the fame of the hermits as hunters spread through the county. And at infrequent intervals, mountaineers accepted the hospitality of their cabin. These visitors were deeply impressed with the depth of the friendship of the odd pair. One was known as Emmanuel Mann. The other was Henry Heist, who later earned sobriquet of the mountain lion.
2: Never referred to once before as the mountain lion. <laughs>
3: The two powerful hunters in their seclusion became so attached to each other that they were seldom seen apart. In their wanderings through the hills, one day during the winter of 1892 and 3, Mon and Heist stopped for a few moments at the home of a neighboring mountaineer. They were invited to attend a party to be held there, and after some hesitation, they accepted. In the vicinity of Jack's Mountain, a custom prevails among the country folk to assemble at one another's homes during the long winter evenings and pass the time in merrymaking. Reese, the backwoodsman who extended the invitation to the hermits, planned a dance as the feature of his entertainment for the young folk of the region. Early in the evening of February 2nd, Mon and Heist, discarding their hunting garments, donned their best clothes and went to the mountainside to the Reese house, where they were hospitably greeted by their host, who introduced them to a group of men and women gathered from over South Mountain. In the assembly were giant young fellows raised in the hills who were accustomed to enjoying themselves as strenuously as they worked, Rosy, buxom girls, dressed in their homespun frocks, formed centers of animated circles, but always with jealous eyes, the mountain chivalry guarded their partners for the dance. A little graceful blonde girl, who carelessly stepped on masculine hearts and was known as the bell of the mountain, caught the admiration of the hermits as they entered the room. She daringly returned their glances, and a suspicious smile played on the curve of their lips as they continued to stare at her. She decided apparently to add two more to her list of victims.:
2: A lot of details in this story
3: in the way that when somebody tells a totally fake story, you're like there's like,
2: two. yeah, how did stuff. they know how she smiled?
3: <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly yeah. or how they smiled. they smiled suspiciously. yeah,
2: it's like yeah, it's...
3: during the festivities, the blonde flirted with the strangers, and as the dance was drawing towards close, she had an opportunity of showing her preference for Mon. It is not customary to draw discriminating lines in the mountain social circle, and the young woman could demand the attention of the favored hermit without attracting undue attention. There are not many of these simple, joyous, blissful old party nights left in Pennsylvania's lowlands. The local parks with the trolleys to feed them have very largely obliterated the homely merrymaking and jovial fun that went with the efforts of a score or more of a country boys and girls to devise their own amusement.
2: Yes, see, before the internet, we had such wholesome entertainment.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But sometimes, back where there are no trolleys to whirl away the young folk... <laughs>
2: Before the trolleys. Before the trolleys. <laughs>
3: Remember that? Uh. Let's make America a great again. <laughs> Before the trolleys. But sometimes, back where there are no trolleys to whirl away the young folk on an evening's party in the nearest town and in the lonelier cabin, cabins of the mountains, the good old times are with them still, with the fiddle and the dance to their vigorous content, and with every latent love affair forced into bloom like a rose in a hothouse. The girl who is kissed on the impulse then doesn't resent it quite so much as she does alone in the lane, although she may slap harder for the benefit of a critical public. The beau, who is bashful when she is solitary in her dignity, plucks up courage from the very number of his sex. Mon and Heist, awkward and scarcely at their ease among the little gathering of neighbors, the scene was stirring every warm human sentiment that had been so long relinquished for the sake of their one mutual friendship and their rough pleasure in nature's changing moods. Mm-hmm. The bell of the evening, to whom such stray victims were game as fair as any deer the hermits themselves would slay, was radiant in her enjoyment. She looked the queen of the little party, and she was its queen in truth, But for all her admitted supremacy, those who devoted themselves to her were few, not because she could not have had the others, but because she had recognized her power over two uncouth strangers from the instant her eyes met theirs. She had resolved then that she would drink deep of the cup of men's most sincere admiration, up to the point where her woman's jealousy should have the satisfaction of proving her charms stronger than those of the closest friendship.
2: They really, like, know what was going on in her head. That's amazing.
3: They also know the nature of their friendship and how awkward they were just being stuck with each other all the time. Mm-hmm. Curious. Yeah. But in that she failed, at least so far as any one of the watchers of the cruel comedy could see at the time. Mon took her favors eagerly, thirstily, as a parched man might revel in the water he has long been deprived of. But his friend showed no resentment, although he courted with her with an equally frank admiration and would be rebuffed by her blighting sallies when he presumed beyond her scant indulgence to him. The two hunters were in fact good sportsmen, long tried by their friendly rivalries of the mountainside. Had her smiles gone to Heist and her occasional frowns to mon, the stoic that was in each of them would have shown no bitterness to the other, however filled with hatred they might have become. When the evening of merrymaking came to an end, and the hermits quietly withdrew, for the blonde was escorted home by the rival of both, and the odd pair began their trip up to their mountainside cabin. That was the last dance Mon ever attended. He suddenly disappeared, and it was believed that he froze to death in a blinding snowstorm during one of his hunting expeditions. Neighbors formed scouting parties and searching Jack's Mountain without success. Then the woods surrounding the cabin were investigated, but no trace of the missing man could be found. Then, for the first time... Foul play was suspected, and incidents of the dance were remembered. In view of the David Jonathan friendship existing between the two hermits, however, no definite action was taken, and for a few months Mons disappearance was almost forgotten. The finger of suspicion had not pointed to Heist alone. For a number of years during the early nineties, the better class of residents living in the vicinity of Cold Springs and Jack's Mountains were frequently annoyed by the depredations of a band of thieves roaming about during the winter. Numerous reports drifted into cold springs from the big flat district on the top of the mountain that an organized band of chicken thieves were operating in that neighborhood.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I think it was an organized band of chicken thieves, Henry Heist.
3: Yeah. (laughs) The peaceful country folk were so intimidated by constant threats that they feared to move against the outlaws. Wise Acres on the Mountain advanced the theory that Mon might have either joined the outlaws or have been killed by them. In the revival of discussion over the disappearance of the hermit, the mystery connected with the case increased. Early in the spring, one of Heist's neighbors visited the cabin and found it empty. The door was open, and from all evidence, the shack had not been occupied for several weeks, and again the suspicion that Heiss had slain his companion arose. The snow clouds came, signs of winter melted away, Then at last Nature disclosed the missing links in a chain of circumstantial evidence that corroborated the belief that Emmanuel Bon had been cruelly murdered. At a distance of about one half mile from his mountain hermitage, the body was found hidden beside a fallen tree and covered with brush and leaves. Drops of blood were traced back along the trail leading to the cabin, and on Mon's head were found several deep impressions made apparently by blows with a hatchet. With the revelations of foul play, the mountaineers began to think over past events and to magnify previously unnoticed incidences. They recalled the last night that Manny Mon Mann was seen alive in company with Heist. They remembered the rivalry over the blonde bell of the dance, and they recollected that Heist was in a surly mood when he left. All these phases of the, of the evening of merrymaking, which seemed trivial then, when placed together now added weight to the belief that Heist knew more than he would tell of the murder. On the information of Solomon Mon a relative of the slain man. A warrant was issued for the arrest of Henry Heist on the awful charge of murder. At this time, Heist was roaming in the mountains. Reports were sent into cold springs from different localities where the fugitive had been seen, but no one would risk his life by attempting to capture him. The mountain lion, he as he was then dubbed, was a powerful, raw-boned, semi-barbaric backwoodsman facing the gallows if convicted, and the thought of even meeting him wrought consternation among those living near his mountain haunts. <laughs> this is the same guy who was like five foot six. Yeah, He's the, the mountain. mountain lion. I'm taller than a mountain lion. <laughs>
2: <laughs> taller than the mountain lion.
3: The though. mountain lion. Posse's and deputies pursued heist through the Adams County region of South Mountain. He was at one time discovered in the Cold Springs district and driven from his hiding place. He was a- followed across the Big Flat to the Chambersburg Pike, where he was shot at several times. He evaded the officers and retraced his trail across the mountain. I don't think there's any truth to that whatsoever. There's
2: no record of that at all.
3: By this time, nearly every home in the region was provided with firearms or some other weapon of defense, and the mountaineers inquired constantly for the whereabouts of the mountain lion. The chase continued for weeks without success, and finally all trace of Heiss was lost. Had the fickle smiles of the country bell set two friends at odds a hundred years previously, the chances are that Henry Heiss, guilty as the law had pronounced him to be, or innocent and yet aware of the terrible charge liable to be brought against him, could have made good his escape. He might even have succeeded in getting away under modern conditions of civilization had he fled at the hour when Mon fell victim to the murderous hatchet blows. But the sobriquet of Mountain Lion was well chosen for the fugitive. He knew little or nothing of the outside world, Its millions of men, all with hands upraised against him, frightened him into his fastness. He had no fear of numbers that he could not see with his eyes, although he had ample caution. He was the wild animal trapped in an invisible net, of the mountain's proportion and size, but destined sooner or later to force him to its edge and to capture or to stretch him, a dying skeleton upon the bare earth from very lack of food. Had he even turned straight from the murder of his rival to the doors of the nearest jail— Surrendered himself and declared that he had slain Mon in the heat of passion, he would have stood a chance of escaping the waiting hangman. There were no witnesses to the killing, even at this far removed from the date of the tragedy, It is held probable that Heist slew his friend in a fiery quarrel, where either was likely to seize the weapon that came handiest and to strike without premeditation for the preservation of his own life. To the ignorant hermit, learned only in the ways of the rabbits and the birds, these considerations were as foreign as they were to the mountain lion that lent him his name. He could depend only on his hands and his gun with its failing ammunition and the few food animals he could shoot or trap. Those weeks in the wilderness must have been one long, relentless torture for him with the hue and cry ever ready to respond to his appearance anywhere near the haunts of men.
2: That reference there, the hue and cry, means hounds. But, oh, okay. And that is the only reference anywhere to hounds being sent after him that i could oh,
3: okay. find Oh, with the risk of discovery attending any fire he kindled against the soaking rains with food always more and more scarce and if the law's verdict he accepted as just with the vision of his friend's pallid corpse never absent from his memory
2: okay also he wasn't even gone that long he wasn't even on the run that long if you go back to the original articles it was like a week or something. And
3: then it, he gave himself up, and right? And he
2: gave himself up. And they know where he was. They know the houses he stayed at. These, everybody was like, oh, yeah, he was here. I and then he him. said
3: he was at his dad's house the night before living in yeah, the barn, yeah. right?
2: This, this article is hilarious.
3: He could, he could barely put a, you know make a fire for, lest they be on his tail and catch 15
2: him. 15 years later, and this is much fiction in the story.
3: The terror of the foothills below was verging nearer, day by day, to the exhaustion of body and spirit that brings men of their own accord to the doom they know is awaiting them. When almost all hope of ever finding him was given up, Adams County was startled from border to border by the sudden and dramatic appearance of the fugitive in Gettysburg. On the morning of the incident, two farmers were driving a load of produce to the county seat. When a few miles out of the city, they were accosted by an uncouth stranger who begged them to permit him to ride in their wagon. The stranger was in a pitiful condition, his clothes ragged and cut by briars, emaciated and weak. The farmers complied with his request. Once in the wagon, the stranger lay down in some straw at one end and refused to answer any of the questions which the farmers, out of curiosity, had asked him. Regardless of the bumps caused by the rough road, the man with no identity curled up in the straw and went to sleep. When the square in Gettysburg was reached by the farmers, they rudely awakened their passenger, who jumped up with a startled and hunted look in his eyes, but retained his reticence. Say, who are you? asked one of the farmers, insisting upon knowing something about this mysterious mountaineer. After a moment's hesitation, the stranger straightened himself, threw back his shoulders, and caused almost as much excitement in the square as when the Battle of Gettysburg was fought. (laughs) When he replied, Henry Heist is my name, what of it? The news spread, and although police officers were on the scene in a few minutes, the Mountain lion submitted peacefully to the authorities and was placed in a cell.
2: Lucky for them. Yeah. I mean, he was the Mountain lion.
3: Driven to desperation through hunger and fatigue, and at the end of his resources, he had decided to give himself over to the law. When Heiss was arraigned before a justice of a peace, the street in front of the office was packed with men who clustered about the door during the entire hearing. A few Mountaineers were present, but no demonstration was made. The accused man was held over for court on the strength of the few bits of circumstantial evidence and was committed to the Gettysburg Jail. At the session of criminal court held on April 25, 1893, the grand jury returned a true bill on the indictment charging heist with the murder of Emanuel Mon. The prisoner's counsel moved for a continuance. The motion was granted and the case listed for the August session. During the intervening months, the mountain lion stoutly maintained his innocence of the crime but District Attorney Duncan gathered stray pieces of evidence, which pieced together formed a chain that inevitably pointed to Heist as the Manslayer. On August 28th, the prisoner was brought into court by Sheriff Stoner and arraigned for trial. It continued for six days. It was one of the most sensational trials in the annals of Adams County. A total of 67 witnesses were subpoenaed by the Commonwealth. The trial attracted wide attention and was attended not only by scores of backwoodsmen, but by many substantial citizens who were anxious to see punishment meted out for the crime. Slowly, the prosecution unfolded the story of the crime, but the real motive has never been satisfactorily explained. The Commonwealth emphasized the incidents of the restance stance as leading up to the cause of the murder. By witnesses, it was shown that Mon and Heiss exhibited evidences of jealousy over the bill of the ball, and that the young mountain lass had demonstrated her preference for Mon. Witnesses swore that as the festivities were drawing to a close, it was Heiss who grew restless and was plainly angry over his own slow progress with the girl and his companion's rapid advancement. It was the belief of the few who were acquainted with the lives of the hermits that their friendly relations ceased when they left the Reese home that night. The prosecution attempted to show that after the custom of the backwoodsman, the mountain lion nursed his grievance, and when his jealous instinct could no longer be curbed, he determined to assert his right according to barbaric methods. But the strongest bit of evidence was a hatchet, and when the piece of steel was produced in court, it seemed to have had a profound effect on the jury. When Mann's body was discovered, on the victim's head were found several deep impressions, and at the time of the coroner's inquest, the theory was advanced that the wounds were caused by either a hatchet or an axe. The ugly gashes gave the appearance of having been made by a ragged-edged instrument. He produced a hatchet. It was rusty and old. Its edge was rough, and the blade had indentations that conformed exactly with the impressions of the wounds. The hatchet had been found hidden in the stove at the hermitage on Jack's Mountain. Strengthening this evidence were the telltale drops of blood traced from the spot where Mon's body was found back along the trail leading to the lonely habitation. So, like, months later after all the snow? Yeah. The prosecution made a strong, circumstantial case, drawing damaging testimony from the lips of the big throng of witnesses that it had subpoenaed. Quick to jump at conclusions, the Mountain residents did not sympathize with Heist, and many of them believed him guilty weeks before the case was even tried.
2: Because like, they knew these people, and yeah. they knew what was going on.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's curious, like, why are, they taking, why, is, why are they taking up his defense now?
2: I think he, the writer of the article, the uh, is the, the, the columnist is like wants to make this romantic character out of him.
3: Maybe, yeah. yeah. Again, it's a story of like thwarted by love. They retreat to the mountains yeah. and know nothing but rabbits and killing stuff.
2: Right? They were just these rough mountain men. They were uh, innocent to the ways of the world. These guys were ruffians. They, yeah, they were. And he
3: saw the world a fair bit, I would think, while he was at Eastern State Penitentiary. Yeah, yeah. One day, Heist requested his counsel to permit him to take the stand, and he might tell his own story of the crime, but they denied him this opportunity. The chain of circumstantial evidence built up by the Commonwealth was attacked, but each fact brought out was forcibly corroborated by the state's witnesses. It could be noticed that few doubts existed in the minds of the talesmen on the last day of the trial. Finally, the case was placed in the hands of a jury for a decision, and on September 2nd, the 12 men returned a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree. On September 29th, President Judge William McLean imposed the penalty of death upon the prisoner. During the term of Heist's incarceration in the Gettysburg jail, he persisted in telling the sheriff that there were others who knew more about the murder than he did. After his conviction, the mountain lion revealed the name of one man whom he accused of slaying Mon. Deputies scoured the county and found the mountaineer who was taken to Gettysburg to face Heist in the presence of Judge McLean, the hermit upon whom The shadow of the gallows was deepening, openly declared that the man he confronted was guilty, and that a mistake had been made in his own case. Although this created another sensation for Adams County, little credence was given Heist's story by the authorities, and the mountaineer he accused was released, and preparations for the execution of the mountain lion proceeded. But the counsel for Heist continued to fight for his life. An appeal was taken to the Supreme Court and refused. After the decree of death had been returned by Governor Robert Pattison, setting the date for the execution, deep sympathy for the prisoner was aroused. A Presbyterian preacher headed a movement on Heist's behalf, for hundreds of Adams County residents were now becoming skeptical of the prisoner's guilt. A petition was circulated throughout the county asking for a computation of sentence and was largely signed. This effort was rewarded by a 30-day reprieve. The case was presented to the Board of Pardons, but without success and the degree of death was finally carried into execution on January seventeenth, 1894. Up to the last minute, Heist declared he was not the guilty man. He offered no explanation of the death, nor did he make any confession. The last dramatic incident occurred when the prisoner was placed on the scaffold just before his execution. Before the black cap was placed on his head, the raw bone giant of the hills raised his eyes and looked squarely in the faces of those gathered to witness his last moments of life and said, I am an innocent man. I never harmed the boy. We never had any words. The noose was placed about his neck. The trap fell and the mountain lion quiveringly dropped to his death. The mystery surrounding the death of Emmanuel Mann to this day has not been satisfactorily solved. After his execution, a number of criminal prosecutions were instituted against characters of the mountain district who were supposed to have been acquaintances of the two hermits and members of a band of outlaws infesting the region at that time. Some persons believe that there were several persons connected with the slaying of Mon, and that Heise was nothing more than a, an accessory to the crime. Within the last year, the state police have been called into the Adams County section of South Mountain, and the strain of bad blood has not yet been eradicated. At a recent session of the criminal court in Franklin County, William Reed was found guilty of committing a cold-blooded murder at Mount Alto Sanatorium near the Cold Springs district. The heist murder trial will long be remembered as the most dramatic in the annals of Adams County criminal history. John Scott, one of the defendants' counsel, later made use of it when he wrote The Woman in Question, one of his early productions. The novel teems with local color, and in the portrayal of the murder trial, Scott seems to have received his inspiration and material from the heist case.
2: Well, maybe that's where the columnist is borrowing some from from that novel or something, but... um,
3: Yeah, someone's adding a a colorful narrative that
2: doesn't exist. Yeah, they were trying to get his death sentence commuted, but that didn't mean they thought he was innocent. They just didn't think he should die for the crime. Yeah, there's a big difference there. there. There's a big difference there. That whole tone of the article changes. I just think it was interesting 15 years later how now he's this sort of hero of the mountains, the mountain lion, Henry Heist. And
3: it also now it's become the fault of the woman they accidentally made at a party. And you notice that
2: article <laughs> mentions none of his earlier crimes, none no, of his stints nothing. in the penitentiary, none of that. So it's, it's very interesting.
3: Not the fact that they lived on the same property as someone they knew.
2: Yeah, yeah. Very interesting A different take on it. I'm going to go with the articles from The Time, I think. Mm -hmm. think And
3: nowhere in The Time did we find an article which calls him The Mountain Lion. No,
2: no. That's later. Heist, according to legend, is not at rest. There is a pack of spectral hounds... That is said to roam on Maria Furnace Road in Fairfield, Pennsylvania. Their bang We didn't go there? I've been there before. <laughs> I didn't go there specifically for this. Their bang can be heard in the dark nights. They're chasing someone. Another specter, the ghost of Henry Heist, Forever Hunted and Forever Haunted. By the Bang Hounds. Um, this story mm-hmm. of the ghosts appears in a book that Chad has about animal ghosts. The woman gives sources for the crime articles, Mm -hmm. several of the sources that we used, she used as well, but no source for the ghost story. So I don't know where the ghost story comes from and who decided that it was Henry Heist, for sure, Mm -hmm. this ghost. The only mention, like I said, of, of hounds that I could find chasing Heist is from this article from 1911, 15 years later. None of the articles at the time mentioned they may have. yeah, They may have had packs of dogs out from but, uh, no, it's interesting. So, Last Man Hanged in Adams County. hmm Ghostly dogs. Yeah. He himself a ghost.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And so, have there been multiple reports of people?
2: The only place I could find the ghost story was in her book and in a newspaper article about her book. So, <laughs> you know, I could find no earlier mentions. That doesn't mean they don't exist. I'm just saying. That's, that's the only places I could find them.
3: I mean, it's the kind of thing, too, that it really—there is value to an oral tradition, which— has no way of um, source being sourced, you know, other than to say recorded interview,
2: blah, blah, blah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But it would be interesting if, if she noted where she got the ghost story.
3: Yeah, even if it's just like, I heard this from some guy. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Or I've heard it from multiple people.
2: She does give the location of his cabin. It's on private property, so we can't go there. It would be really interesting to see. I mean, I'm sure his cabin doesn't exist anymore, but... Mm-hmm. I have found remains of other hermit cabins,
3: and there's a an illustration of it. There in the is paper. Yeah, it's pretty. I suspect that pretty there, rough shanty. There were probably photos of it too. We did read an article where uh, one of the local photographers came to take pictures of the body. So,
2: yeah, they were definitely selling pictures of Mon's body.
3: Yeah, it's a different time. It's the kind of time when you know you'd want to get the ticket to go to an execution. That'd be big time yeah. fun.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's the other thing they they mentioned in the article. Where they're talking about the hanging, the day mm-hmm. of the hanging or the day after, they talked about how well behaved the crowd was. They actually tore the boards down, so that they had put boards up around the, the courtyard or wherever they were hanging them at the prison. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so people, people, couldn't, so see people for couldn't see. So people couldn't see, and they actually tore the boards down. So they could, so they weren't that well behaved. The crowd actually tore the boards down, like
3: a them. Woodstock thing. Just opened the sides. I mean, everyone. they just
2: ripped the boards down so they could see. So <laughs> that was interesting too. I thought.
3: I wonder what your thoughts are when you see all those people anxiously awaiting your public execution.
2: I don't know. And I don't, you know, we don't know like the level of education of Henry Heist. I mean, I think this, that last article you read kind of portrays him as the, you know, this kind of backwoods hero, you know, didn't know much other than hunting and trapping. He seemed like a pretty worldly guy to me, educated or not. He made the rounds, you know, he, yeah. He was. Definitely a known figure, as they said. A known character of the mountains.
3: Chicken thieves everywhere where you least expect it.
2: Exactly. That's the last of our Gettysburg episodes leading up to episode 300, which is also a Gettysburg episode.
3: If we were smart, we would have like set something up so we could do like a live show from Gettysburg, from the bridge or something.
2: We can do that sometime. But uh, there's plenty of stories in Gettysburg, and we'll be back, just not every week like we have. <laughs> yeah. So...
3: We only have about 700 more stories from Gettysburg we could possibly oh, do. There are so many stories. You could have your own podcast where you just do stories about Gettysburg. Oh, you really? And, and they wouldn't even have to be related to the war.
2: You absolutely could. Yeah, absolutely. For more Gettysburg, though, check out episode 300, The Witch Cloud. Like I said, you can get it on Bandcamp, stonebreath.bandcamp.com, or you can get it at Etsy, shop name, Lost Grave. Links are in the show notes. Episode 300, it's super long. It's multimedia, and we're really proud of it. You know I'm going to do a thing about spectral hounds leading into the the 90 days. (laughs) Always looking for a segue into the 90 days commercial. Listeners, Mm -hmm. pretend I had the perfect spectral hound segue going into this 90 days to the perfect puppy commercial. Thank you. (laughs) 90 days to the perfect puppy. They can help you if you have a puppy and you need help with your puppy. You need training help, whether you need help with uh, mouthing and biting or potty training, fear and nervousness. With barking, if your puppy's chewing on things they shouldn't be chewing on, like furniture and shoes.
3: If they're walking through walls.
2: If you need help with crate (laughs) training, hyperactivity issues, leash training, and more, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you. With their relationship-based approach to training, their online sources like video lessons, secret Facebook groups, one-on-one options also are available. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you understand how your dog thinks and apply proactive training methods so you and your puppy can become perfect for each other. Again, you can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. People have been sending me Bigfoot figurines, Allison. (laughs) I threw away the return address. The name is Risky Bismuth, which is hilarious. Risky Bismuth, because he makes them out of Bismuth. Uh On uh, Instagram, sent me a little Bigfoot miniature. And Greg K. sent me another one. Uh, These were unsolicited. Thank you very much. My Bigfoot miniature collection is, is extended. It's getting
3: very big. And
2: I don't remember, like months ago, Sandra from... Herth Pewter sent me one that they made, and I don't know if I ever thanked her. While I'm uh, thanking people for Bigfoot miniatures, I thought I'd, I better circle back because I really don't remember if I thanked her. If I didn't, that there
3: was— Somebody sent you the large Yeti guy at Christmas oh, yes, time. Yeah,
2: I think—did I, think... I thank—whoever sent me the huge Yeti, thank you for that as well. I They're all really cool. T- totally different in their own— Yeah, I should have written all this stuff down. It's been a crazy busy time. I'm very sorry for that. I'm I'm not being rude. I hope. Well, evidently I'm. <laughs> I'm not trying to be rude. And you
3: really do appreciate it. Yeah, I'm very do. excited every time a little Bigfoot shows up.
2: Yes, thank you all. Thank you very much. Fiddler's Green magazine sent us another issue. It's always beautiful, like just incredible. I have not gotten a chance to do artwork for them in quite a few issues. And I really feel badly about that, and I I would like to start illustrating again for Fiddler's Green, but their new issue is out. You can find that at fiddlersgreenzine.com. Fantastic magazine. The
3: most nicely printed zine I think I've ever seen. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's just it's just beautifully, beautifully printed. Excellent publication. So thank you to Clint Marsh and Fiddler's Green. Thanks for sending that. We always love your publications. This guy in this photo, Allison, mm-hmm. it's taken at Mumford in Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he's Henry Heist.
3: (laughs) He is a mustachioed man of about the same age.
2: He looks enough like the drawing in the paper. I mean.
3: Yeah, enough where I'm like, should we really be selling this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, we have a... I
3: originally purchased that because I knew we were going to do so many Gettysburg episodes, and I was like, it'd be cool to have just something from Gettysburg. Yeah. So many things attached to Gettysburg are pricey just from the relation to the war, so... Yeah, a
2: lot of of these, the photographers, just because they were there at the time.
3: Yeah, the photos become valuable, so this is just a...
2: It's a portrait of a man. It is most likely not Henry Heist. <laughs> the chances are very, very remote. We don't know who it is. There's, it's not identified.
3: But it is identified as being from Gettysburg. Yeah. So you get a little souvenir.
2: Yeah. So this will be our curiosity of the week. We will put a picture of this in the show notes under this episode. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase this and other curiosities of the week. Also at Etsy, I have artwork, original art, and prints. All of my books are there. They come signed when you buy them on Etsy. You don't even have to ask. Strange Familiars t-shirts, the traditional Awoken Tree t-shirt, and much more. Check it out. Again, shop name, Lost Grave. But if you type in Strange Familiars, you'll see our stuff come up. While you're at Etsy, make sure to check out Chad shop, Ruck Rabbit Outdoors. You can buy hatchets there. Don't murder your cabin mates with them.
3: (laughs) No matter the nature of your Jonathan David friendship, it's not worth it. (laughs) It's not
2: worth it. He's got wool and all kinds of other stuff. His inventory constantly changes. And our friends at Karmic Garden have this strange familiar scent, the flannel man scent, and many, many other wonderful scents for soaps and candles and the like. The Strange Familiars High Strangeness Tour shirts, the pre-order was very much a success. We're going to have those in a few weeks. I'm not sure how long production is going to take because it's a, it's a pretty big order. But we will have those and we will send those out as soon as we start getting them. They're not all going to get mailed in one day, but we'll begin mailing them.
3: Tim is really fast, though. He, really, he will make us do as many as humanly
2: possible <laughs> in a day. I'll do what I can. That was a, a huge success. So thanks, everybody, for pre-ordering. We'll keep you updated on the show when we get them. I'll let everybody know so you can know when to expect them. New Strange Familiar stickers should be coming out soon. We'll put sets of those up on Etsy vinyl sticker sets. Uh, It's going to be the Awoken Tree, William of the Fiery Flowers, The Witch's Eye. New vinyl stickers come in that white and red on black. They look really cool. And I did another vinyl sticker of Hanstrap, my artwork that I did for the Hanstrap episode. So, we'll make a set of those vinyl stickers together that you can purchase on Etsy. Those should be coming soon. I think that's about it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Episode 300, The Witch Cloud. It's already out, but it's also next because we're a time travel and paranormal podcast. <laughs> we'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. If you want to hear more Stone Breath or purchase music by Stone Breath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. The Witch Cloud is available there as well. We are on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash StrangeFamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars Gathering Group. And we are on Instagram at StrangeFamiliars. Now stuck among the grass. This leaf from a barren branch now blows upon the wind. And the white hair from my head now floats upon the sea.
0: And all my fathers look on my face and say they never knew me. Come to the well with me.
2: I take my drink. From there,
0: wait into the water with me, and you will find me there.